If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, John writing what he saw in his vision when the Lord gave him this revelation. We begin reading at the first verse. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his names, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chest girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray you'd open your word to our hearts and minds and open our hearts and minds to your word, Lord. We pray that you'd see us from the Holy Scriptures this day. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and wills to obey. So bless us now, Lord God, and we pray you'd open your word and be with us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in this section, really chapter 15 and 16 go together. Uh, next week we'll be looking, Lord willing, at chapter 16, and that's when the seven bowls are poured out, what happens there. But we're told by way of preference that John says he saw, here he says, another sign in heaven. So we're talking about symbolic language that's being used. And what he's describing, he says it was great and marvelous. And he's talking about the whole event, not just what we read in this chapter, but the plagues that follow, the judgments of God uh, that fall on the earth because of their wickedness, their allegiance to the beast, those who... Um, honor him who received his mark but before we get into the judgments he shows us a picture of the victory of god's saints john tells us what he saw he tells us what he heard and he tells us who and what he saw so he sees the a great and marvelous sign he tells us he saw seven angels having the seven last plagues now initially they didn't have those seven bowls with the plagues in them but he knows the whole story, so he's telling us who they are and how they're identified. Uh, and he says, for in them the wrath of God is completed. So the question comes, is this talking about the end of the world, or is it talking about the final judgment on this whole uh, system of the beast and the Antichrist and all these things? It seems pretty clearly it's pointing toward the, uh, the end, 
At least these judgments seem to be pretty devastating once we get into them and read them. But he says, in them, the wrath of God is completed. God's judgments will be finished. And, you know, after this, there's really not a whole lot of judgments being poured out until we see the, 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 the harlot church, the whore of Babylon, being destroyed. So then he saw something else. So he said, this was marvelous about the angels. But then he says, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Well, early on in uh, the first chapter of that, you saw a similar thing before the throne of God, a sea of glass that is calm, reflective, it's not troubled. It says in Isaiah that the wicked are like the troubled sea that has no rest. He says, there is no peace, therefore, says my God, to the wicked. Um, they're like the, the troubled waves of the sea. You know, the ocean's beautiful. I love going to the shore. haven't been there in a while. I know some of you get a, got away, get opportunities to go there. Um, and it's beautiful because you see God's creation. But you know, the sh- if you're on the ocean, on the shore, it's never at peace. It's never at rest. The waves are always turning, sometimes less, sometimes great. But there's always that turning going on. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. I, you know, or we need that. That's, that's good. But it's a picture. And God says the wicked are like that. They're, they're never at rest. Their hearts are never at rest because of God's judgments that continually fall on them they're not right with god so they can't be at peace they have no peace and god says that there is no peace uh to the wicked but here he sees this sea of glass or lichen glass he sees the sea and it's calm there's no disturbance there's peace he's going to destroy describe the judgments that fall on the earth if the earth's about ready to get plowed you might say um, and to be judged and be turned upside down and inside out and everything else But before that, he sees in heaven a a sea of glass that is calm, mingled with fire. So it's reflecting light. Um, And then he's not just seeing that. He says, and those who have the victory over the beast. So he sees a vast multitude of people there also. The redeemed of the Lord. Those who got the victory over the beast. If you remember, uh, you have the dragon. And then you have the first beast that comes out of the sea, and then you have the second beast that comes out of the earth. It's it kind of complicated. You do need a scorecard, I think. Um, then the second beast comes out, and he makes an image of the first beast and demands everyone worship that. And many say, what on earth is going on here? Well, again, most commentators believe it's a reference to the pagan Roman Empire, at least from John's day forward, that persecuted the saints. Uh, that's the beast out of the sea, the vast multitude of the mankind. This emerged. Augustine referred to it as the kingdom of man. And then you see something else emerge uh, out of the earth. Something is very much of the earth. And that's another beast. And his allegiance is with the, the first beast, but he's different. He's of a different, uh, not necessarily nature, but of a different uh, time. And then he makes an image. And so many believe you have pagan Rome, papal Rome, and then you have the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire and its persecution of God's people. I was just reading yesterday about the uh, St. Bartholomew Massacre in France that when they uh, had an Edict of Nantes when it was put in place in the 1600s and then it was later revoked and then it was uh, open season on the Huguenots, the Protestants, and there was... Uh, probably about 70,000 people that were murdered in and around Paris alone. And uh, when the Bishop of Rome heard of this, when the Pope heard of this slaughter of going on of men, women, and children because they were not Roman Catholics, 
he went in and offered a solemn mass and gave thanks to God and had a coin struck. And I've actually seen copies of that coin uh, he had in commemoration to give thanks to God for the slaughter of the Huguenots. And then not only did they do that, the government of France not only was butchering Protestant Christians, Bible-believing Christians is a better way of putting that, I think, has nothing to do with denominations. Uh, they forbade them to leave France. So anyone that was caught at the border trying to escape it was also uh, put to death. The, the men were often, they weren't killed outright. They were put into uh, the galleys on the ships, and then the women were locked away in prisons to languish and die. And prisons weren't like they are now. If you didn't have somebody on the outside to bring you food and clothing and blankets, you would freeze or starve to death. They just locked you locked you away, and if you didn't have someone to help you, you were in a horrible condition and generally died pretty soon. These things went on. That's just one little example. You can talk about the Albigenses being persecuted, the Waldensian persecutions, uh, not just in Europe, but throughout the world. We see this with world communism. You know, say, well, is that the church of Rome? It's all one worldly system under the enemy. Uh, we've seen, you know, Nazi Germany slaughtered six million Jews and say, well, they weren't necessarily Christians. No, there were a lot of Christians among them, that, and, and the Jewish people were definitely hardened. I've been in, uh, sanctu- uh, in synagogue meetings for various occasions and stuff, not to worship, but to hear special speakers and things. And I've heard the rabbis refer to the fact that, in their understanding, uh, to them it's a fact. They say, yes, in World War II, when the Christians killed all the Jews at, uh, you know, under Nazi Germany, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, those weren't Christians. They killed just as many uh, Christians as they did of Jewish people. But under communism, you have the millions and millions that were killed in Soviet Russia, in China. There were millions of Christians put to death. Um, statistically, as I've mentioned before, it's easy to verify if you just go on Google and look up persecution. The 20th century saw more martyrdoms take place than in all of history combined prior. There were millions of people slaughtered, and that's the way this world is. This world is not a safe place for Christians, but Christians are still safe because, you know, like the, the little lady where the fellow threatened her life, he threatened to kill her, and he was trying to rob her, and he said, if you don't give me your money, I'll kill you, and she laughed at him. And I think she gave him the money, but he said, why are you laughing? She said, you're threatening me with heaven right now. She said, that doesn't work. (laughs) Okay. Um, And so the saints that have been, you know, blessed are those that die in the Lord. You know, God has his people and that sometimes he delivers his own out of the world through martyrdom. But he doesn't abandon them. You know, he's with his people. So we see this multitude of people standing there. They've got the victory over the, the beast. The victory doesn't mean that they all died for their faith. It means they didn't bow down and worship the beast. They didn't receive the mark of the beast. They never swore allegiance to uh, this evil empire or whatever you want to call it. They stood with the Lord Jesus Christ and trusted in him, and they would accept no idolatry or no false kingdom. So they're standing there. Now, some have said, well, they're standing. It says, uh, standing on the sea of glass and... uh, uh, Alfred's a commentator from the 1800s and others have pointed out the language could also mean when it says they stood on the sea it could mean they stood on the shore of the sea having crossed through it you know for the children of Israel because you notice the next thing we're told they sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb and the song of Moses is in Exodus 15 after they had crossed the Red Sea 
and the army of Egypt was drowned in the waters. And so as they stood on the sea, doesn't mean they were standing on top of the water, uh, but as they stood on the other side, having been delivered, then they sang the song of Moses. So Alfred and others believe this is a reference to them passing through the great tribulations that God's saints endure in this life. And now they're in a place of victory. They're standing before the Lord. Others have said, no, the actual Greek word can mean standing upon, because we know the Lord Jesus Christ had no problem walking on the sea, even when it was troubled. Uh, but here we see a calm sea. And the saints, if he wants them to walk just like Peter, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was able... Remember when they, Jesus came to them walking on the Sea of Galilee, when they saw him, they all freaked out and thought it was a ghost. And he said, it's me, don't be afraid. And so Peter... Peter, being Peter, says, well, Lord, if it's you, bid me get out of the boat and come to you. So he says, come. So as you know, Peter got out, started walking toward him on the water. Peter was able to walk on the water. But then it says when the sea was boisterous and tossed and the wind was blowing, Peter started looking around and he began to sink because he took his eyes off the Lord and he cried out, Lord, save me. And says, Jesus took him by the hand, grabbed him, basically pulled him up, and they both walked back to the boat. Uh, only Jesus can do that. Well, these saints here, if they're standing on the sea, it's because the Lord's with them. The sea's no threat to them. If God tells you to go somewhere, you can go there. In Israel, they didn't walk across the Red Sea. This God just got it out of their way. Remember, he parted it, and then they walked across dry shod, it says in Exodus. And then when their enemies, by the way, their enemies were held in check by the pillar of fire, Toward the Egyptians, it was a pillar of fire. Toward the Israelites, it was a shady pillar of a cloud that kept them shaded in the daytime, and the fire kept them warm at night out in the desert. But at that time, the Egyptians couldn't get at them, the army of Egypt, till they got all the way across. Then God lifted the cloud. They pursued them. They were already out of the sea by that time, but the Egyptian army got drowned in the sea. And so God's people praised him. Uh, Exodus 15 He's being praised because of his deliverance, that is, the Lord is. And so they sing the song of Moses. So they're there. They have the harps of God. Also, that could mean harps from God. But they have the harps of God. That is, they're, they're there singing. Uh, the word for harp, by the way, those musicians here among us, it's the uh, the, the uh, Greek word kitara or kitharas. It's actually where the word guitar comes from, Okay. Uh, through various languages into finally into English, but it, you know, it's understood to be harps, not necessarily guitars, but it's stringed instruments. So they're there praising God. So remember that when you're praising God, He does the light and the praises of His people, and it's okay to use uh, instruments in worship provided you're you're there to praise God. So here they have they're having the harps of God, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb, that is the song of the Lord Jesus. It's a song of redemption. He tells us what they said. He says, here's what they said. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? That is, who in their right mind wouldn't do that? Well, mankind is insane with sin, so they don't. But if you're thinking clearly, your Creator made you. He's going to judge the world. There's a heaven and a hell. So who in there alone are holy? God's holiness can be compared to nothing among the creatures. There's a uniqueness about God, you know, and a wonder. Generally, the word holy comes, as I've mentioned, hagias, 
In Greek, it has the idea of separation, and the Hebrew word kadosh or kadesh, it has the same idea. Both the words translated holy means separated, separated from the world, separated unto God. This is a different word used here. It's the word hosios, and it means uh, just holy intrinsically in and out who he is. You know, we speak of God, you know, we, we, as being the Trinity, we have what we call the ontological Trinity, that is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in and of himself through all eternity, without reference to the creation. And then the economic Trinity, it's like, where's economics in it? That has to do with how God works in the creation. The Father decrees, the Son executes the decree by doing it, and then the Holy Spirit applies what the Son has done. We see that in our salvation. The Father decrees, the Son executes, the Holy Spirit applies. So the economic trinity is how God deals with us, but the ontological trinity is how God is in and of himself. And he tells us in Scripture quite a bit about himself, and that's how we can know him. And because he knows everything about everything, we can have a limited revelation that's true because it comes to us, though limited, and our understanding of it is limited, it's nevertheless true because the one who knows everything about everything in reference to everything else, because he ordained all those relationships, when he speaks to his creatures, it's true, even if it's limited, because it comes from the one who knows everything. Philosophically, the statement, you know, you really can't know anything about anything until you know everything about everything and everything in relationship to everything. Got all that? Okay. Taking notes. It's being recorded, I hope, so you can go back and check what I just said. But the idea is that you can't really know something because there might be something way over here that's going to affect this and you didn't know that, so you don't really know everything about this. God does. God knows everything about everything and everything in relationship to everything because he ordained those things to exist and the relationships that they have. So what's that have to do with what we're looking at? Well, when God works, it's good. It's always wonderful, and his plan is being executed in history. He is the infinite God, triune, eternal, magnificent. Everything about him is wonderful, all his attributes. And toward his creatures, because of Christ, he has a plan and a purpose. And those whom he gave to his son will be examples of his mercy and grace for eternity. And his plan won't be thwarted. These saints that are standing before God, they know that. So they're praising God. We have it written down in front of us as a revelation from God's Holy Spirit telling us what the future holds for us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your future is that you will be standing before God praising Him. Now this is a sign, if you remember. This is symbolic. And the saints are already in heaven. See, yeah, but I thought I was here in Reading. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, I've made allusion to this a few times in my preaching. I'd like to read this section. Okay, this is a, a well-known section, but we need to look at it. Ephesians chapter 2. This shows us how in Christ we're already in heaven. Paul, in writing to the Ephesian church, he says, And you, he's talking to the church, the body of Christ, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. What he's saying is that before you were Christians, before you were really trusting in Christ, you were under Satan's control. He was leading you around wherever he wanted you to go. Okay, and the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. There's no neutrality. 
You're either under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God or you're under the influence of Satan, okay? And that's what he's saying here, all right? And it's like, if you want to, you think like, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm, I'm not really, you know, going to do anything bad. Oh, you can reject God's Son, turn your back, spit on His offers of grace, and think you're okay with God somehow? That's not going to happen. Jesus said, He that is not with me is against me. Now, He did say to His people, the one that's not against you is with you. A little different in regard to us, but as to Himself, He said, He that's not with me is against me. You really don't want to make an enemy of Christ. All right? But here we see this. He said, This is the condition you were in. You were enemies. And then he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Note that there's intellectual lust as well as fleshly lust. Okay. And were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So here we see this, that you know, before a person saved, they're under God's wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy. So he didn't, he doesn't just leave us here. Never sermons preached on this, that I'll praise the Lord that Paul went, kept writing. And that little phrase, but God, that changes everything. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, note that, spiritually, a person outside of Christ, they're not wounded, they're not sick, they're dead. They're cut off from It's not a... It's not a neutral type dead. It's not like Rush Limbaugh used to say they assume room temperature spiritually somehow. Uh, if you're dead spiritually, it means you're in a state of enmity against God. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The carnal mind, Paul says in Romans 8, is enmity. That means in a state of war against God. So being spiritually dead doesn't mean you're neutral. It means you're in opposition and hatred and enmity against God. Now, cultural norms, upbreeding, you know, education, being taught some manners by our parents, you know, that can kind of push some of that down so we end up having pretty good opinions of ourselves. But an unregenerate heart is still an abomination to God. Even when we were dead in trespasses. No, so you didn't have anything to do with your salvation is what he's telling you. Even when you were dead in trespasses, made us alive. And then note this phrase, made us alive together with Christ. That phrase, alive together with Christ, is one word in the Greek, or the first word. Co-quickened is what the good translation would be. You were co-quickened, co-enlivened with Christ. And raised us up together, literally co-raised. That raised us up together is one word. Raised together, that is when Jesus became alive at his resurrection, because if you're a believer, that's when you came alive legally. Christ died for us, and when he rose again, he rose representing you. So in God's eyes, if you're a believer, you've already died and been resurrected from the dead. Your sins have been paid for, not by you personally, but by your substitute. And he raised us up together and made us sit together, co-seated us, in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, physically, you're not in heaven right now. Just, you know, in case you weren't wondering. You know, in case you thought maybe you were. Okay, the air conditioning's functioning around a whole lot of pleasant people. You're not in heaven yet, physically. Legally, before God, and God is a legal God. That's why He forgives sin. He pardons the debt. Legally, you're already in heaven. 
because Jesus, who legally is you, is your representative. It's like you, you know, you get a lawyer in court. Your lawyer is you. If he loses the case, though, you go to jail. In this case, Christ didn't lose the case. He represented you legally. He became you. Your sins were imputed to him. That is, they were placed on him as if they were his own. And then his righteousness later now is imputed to you. And Jesus represents you. You know, when he died on the cross, if you're a believer, legally that was you. He was representing you. You were on the cross. Not personally, but representatively. And when he died, he died as you before God. That is, he paid the penalty that you owed. I hope that's clear. But he's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places. And here's the most important phrase. In Christ Jesus. Legally, if you're a believer, legally because Jesus is in heaven and he represents you. You're already there. What you're experiencing right now is the outworking of your salvation, your sanctification. But legally, you're safe. You're already before God in heaven. So when we see the sign of those that are before God, it's not necessarily just talking about the saints in heaven. It's talking about the whole church on earth and those who have died and who are their spirits are with the Lord now in heaven. We refer to that as the church triumphant and the ones here on earth because we have the fight to contend with. We're the church militant. And so I think that the picture John is showing us in Revelation 15 is probably a picture of both. Because we're down here, what were we just doing a few minutes ago? Well, we were singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, not the exact words in uh, Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32. We're singing God's praises. We're worshiping him. Why? Well, because we're standing on the shore. We've passed through it. Just like the Israelites, when they got on the other side of the shore, and later the dead Egyptians, some started washing up on the shore, they realized people that wanted to kill us are gone. As Christians, we're in Christ. And in Jesus, we've already passed through the sea. We stand on the shore. So we can praise God with all the saints in heaven and on earth and say, Great and marvelous, O Lord, are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. God, there's no injustice when God judges the wicked. Just and true are your ways. Sterling, the idea of that word true. Uh, it doesn't just mean true as to the facts. It means sterlingly true as to his character and who he is. Uh, just and true are your ways. O King of the saints, Christ is King. The Lord God Almighty reigns over his people. He reigns over the nations. He reigns over the ages. And he is sovereign over all things. And then they asked this question. We looked at it. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For Now, here you have a group of people that are thinking correctly. They're not deceived. They're not being led astray by the lust of their own hearts or the glitter of the world or just the pleasures of this life that, you know, the Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. You know, and then when it runs out, it's gone forever. But they're, they're thinking soberly. They're thinking clearly. And so when they ask this question, we're getting this question asked from people who are thinking correctly. And their question is, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And then note this beautiful statement they make. They know what God's plan is. They say, For all nations shall come and worship before you. God has a plan. The nations, the Gentiles, that's the word there, in yeah, ethnoi, 
we get the word ethnic, it means it's translated Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish nations, all nations, including the Jews and the Gentiles, all nations shall come and worship before you. Through the gospel going out, God has a people, they will be brought in. For your judgments have been manifested. It's very clear, God does judge sin. We see that. We see that in our own experience. You know, physical death is still in the world. The Lord is pleased not to, to allow that to even be part of a Christian's experience. But there's no sting in death for us now. We've passed from death into life. <clears throat> but death came about because of sin, Paul tells us in Romans 6. So your judgments have been manifested. We've seen how God works. We've seen nations judged. We've seen individuals judged. We know, as it says in Scripture, be sure your sin will find you out. Those who sometimes think they're smarter than God find out that, you, that you, you're not. And that he gave his word, he gave his law not to torment us or to limit us. He gave it to protect us. You know, like this, the stripes on the road when you're driving. If someone says, man, I really feel like I'm, I'm being oppressed, man. They're saying i got to drive on the right side of the road and i got to stay on this side of that painted line. Who are they to tell me what to do? I'm going to just do whatever I want to do. How long are you going to last if you do that? Not very long, okay? And so when people say, oh, God's law is so restrictive. Really? Uh, you know, and so they, they don't want to obey the Lord. They don't want to do what's right. And what happens? They destroy their lives. They destroy themselves. And apart from God's mercy, they destroy themselves for eternity. So John sees those who have been redeemed by God's grace. We saw these, the saints in heaven or as seen as in heaven, it's a, it's a sign, so I believe, like I say, it's the saints on earth, because we're already in Jesus in heaven, and the saints that are there too. So this is the whole church praising God. <clears throat> and then we have just these, this, this prelude to what's in the next chapter. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. So he looks and he sees that the heavenly tabernacle is open, <clears throat> place where God's glory is manifested. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues. Now note this. Once the saints are done praising God, we see the judgments proceed. We know when we saw the saints under the altar, remember early? And they said, Lord, how long, holy and true, do you not judge the world? And in the next chapters we read of God's judgments falling. God heard the prayers of his saints. He also hears the praises of his saints. And so as God's saints pray and praise him, God's plan and purpose unfolds. <clears throat> Some would say, well, I thought you were saying they have to pray before it happens. <clears throat> I think it was Spurgeon that said, God has not only ordained the answer to your, your prayers, he's ordained the prayers themselves. God will open doors, but sometimes he doesn't open it until you knock. As a matter of fact, what did Jesus have to say about that? He didn't say, don't worry about knocking, it will be opened. Don't worry about asking, it'll be granted. That's not what he said. Don't worry. You know, he said, knock, and it shall be open. And that word knock, it's present tense. The idea is keep knocking. Keep knocking. It's not, it's not wrong to keep going to God. Now, you have burdens. Somebody asks him to lift a burden. You know, I've often pointed out, first prayer, you ask him to take the burden. Probably be a good idea after that, start praying, asking him to let, help you to let go of it. <laughs> okay? Because we play a lot of tug of war with God. But when we're praying for things to change, we need to keep in, and persevere in prayer. That idea has been lost in the modern church. The idea of actually, <clears throat> as one person told me years ago, get down on your knees and start praying, 
And don't get and keep your Bible open in front of you, and don't get up till you have some assurance in your heart from the Word of God that your prayers have been heard. And we don't do that very often. But we need to. I don't do it as much as I should. Uh, but we need to learn to persevere in prayer. Okay, as God's saints persevere in prayer, and as they persevere in praise. You know, back a hundred years, two hundred years ago, among Bible-believing Christians, the idea of singing psalms and hymns in your home regularly every day was common if the saints from that time the believers who came into our time and they said what you guys don't have family worship in your house you're not praising god you you heads of households you men here you don't gather your children and your wife and your other family members and have a worship service in your home you don't do that what on earth are you doing you know, the Westminster uh, Assembly and some of their directives point out the heads of household have to gather, you know, their household servants and their children and everybody in the house and have a time of worship daily. And it doesn't happen. We need to do this more. I need to do it more. Okay. But the idea of restoring family worship back into our homes, you know, we wonder why, you know, our culture is in such decline and wrecked. It's because Christians aren't doing what they should be doing. Now, if you are doing that, you are having prayer and Bible reading with your family, good. Keep it up. Don't let the world get in the way of that. The point is, God's plan moves forward by the prayers and the praises, don't lose that part, of his people. Singing his praises, just worshiping him, just meditating on the goodness of God and giving him thanks. The reason why we want to have family worship and scripture read in our homes is because we want to encourage our children and wives and, and husbands and everybody else to have a, a good positive attitude toward the things of God and to know that he loves them. Because when they go out into this world, they're not going to find a whole lot of love at times, okay? They're going to find opposition, and they're going to find some pretty mean people out there. And they need to know that the Lord is with them. So here we see that once the saints have praised God, then we see the angels come forth. It says they were clothed in pure bright linen. That is, what they're going to do is holy, having their chest girded with golden bands. So they kind of have the appearance of priests here, don't they? Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Now the the, uh, the living creatures that were before the throne in uh, the uh, Book of Revelation, chapter five, when they're praising God, they refer to themselves as those uh, in uh, in those who have been redeemed by God. In Revelation five. Uh, we're told in verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, remember that, when the Lamb took the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And some have said that could possibly be what's being handed to the angels, that is, an the answer to their prayers. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and note, and have redeemed us to God, by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that's all the nations, and have made us kings and made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders are clearly representing the church, the, the people of God. And so here we see this. So one of those four living creatures before the throne hands to the seven angels, the seven bowls, golden bowls, full of the wrath of God. Now. 
Originally, these were perhaps the ones filled with the prayers of the saints, and because God answers prayer, now we're seeing judgment fall. Uh, the temple was filled with smoke, that is, from the glory of God and from his power. No one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. God's glory is being manifested here, and that's what he's saying. So we see in this section the prelude to the seven judgments, but we see God's saints. When the judgments of God are falling on the earth, God's people are safe. Israel was in the land of Goshen in Egypt. God looks out for his people. He'll deliver his own either by life or in death, however it pleases him to do so. But he'll never leave them nor forsake them. And so next week we'll look at what these judgments are. But we can join with that crowd that was symbolically represented. We are the part of that crowd. You were there in that vision, that group that's praising God, standing on the sea with the harps of God praising him. Beloved, that's you. You're part of that. That's your people, okay? That's who you are. You're one of those, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're one of those praising God that's been redeemed because you haven't bowed the knee to the to the beast, whatever wicked systems this world throws up, whether it's, you know, uh, sacramentalism or communism or whatever ungodly wickedness becomes the, you know, cause du jour of the unsaved. But God's people stand against that and say, no, I'm going to stand with Jesus. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And the world's going to hate you, but you'll be okay. And so we see the saints there gathered in heaven, standing on that sea, and it's at peace, because God's peace prevails. Let's pray. Lord, be with us now, we pray. Keep us in your loving grace, and we ask you to work in our hearts that we would really love you and honor you, and keep us safe from this world, and help us never to bow the knee to wickedness or evil in any form nor to the kingdom of Antichrist, nor uh, the things that these symbols represent. Help us to stand with you, Lord Jesus, and to trust in you. And Father, we ask your mercies and your grace to be with us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.